This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have Dinosaur of the Day, Skeletosaurus, and Kylosaurian, sort of. (laughs) Any excuse. (laughs) And a bunch of dinosaur news. And as always, we like to thank some of our patrons for helping us keep our podcast going. Now going on three and a half, coming up on four years. So this week we would like to thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Janice, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, Ray, Oliver E, Andrew and Helena Webb, Callum, and Andrew Barling. And Andrew just joined, so thank you. Yeah, thanks everyone. We really appreciate all your support. And if you want to join this awesome community, then check out our page at patreon.com slash I I think we're more than halfway now towards our next big goal. We are. Yeah. We might need to add another lower one too. We'll think about it yeah. and get back to you. <laughs> but you're right. We have crossed that because I think it's 160 patrons and I believe we're up to 83 or so. So Ooh, that's exciting. Yeah. Jumping into the dinosaur news. I'm starting with one I think you'll like, Sabrina. It's about a new set of sauropodomorph tracks. Nice. And they cover an area of about 350 square meters in Maotai Guizhou province in China, which is in southwest China. And we haven't talked about that area much before. I think we mentioned it. I had to search back in like episode 130 or something. Oh, so long ago. (laughs) Yeah, most of the Chinese dinosaurs we talk about come from the northeast, basically. And sometimes they call it western, but it's still far north of this. And I should mention that Lida Xing and others wrote this paper. Not surprising. Lida Xing writes about a lot of the Chinese dinosaurs. That's true. Maotai is a famous part of China because there's a type of baijiu named after the area. And if you're not familiar with baijiu, it's sort of like a combination of vodka and whiskey that's really popular in China. It's made from all sorts of different things. I think it also is essentially made in other places too, going by different names in Asia. Hmm. But so you might have heard of Maotai before. And these footprints were actually uncovered during the construction of a distillery. So they were going to make some more Maotai in Maotai <laughs> and found some dinosaur tracks instead. Although it's kind of, I'm not sure exactly if it interfered with their construction or if they just saw it because it's basically on one of those sort of cliff faces. So it's not the kind of thing you would expect to build on top of unless they were removing part of a hillside or something in order to do their construction. Hmm. 
It was kind of funny. One article also called it a wine factory, which I thought was kind of weird because it's like up to 70% alcohol and wine is like 10% basically. So some strong wine. The tracks are also from the early Jurassic, which is a little bit unusual for China because a lot of the fossils we talk about are Cretaceous with their bird and bird-like fossils. But these ones are sauropodomorphs, like I mentioned, and they're thought to be relatively small, about five to six meters or 16 to 19 feet long, which is actually pretty tiny for sauropods. Although these are sauropodomorphs, so they're sort of not necessarily sauropods. It's kind of unclear from a track. It's hard to say if it was a, you know, serious real sauropod or if it was just one of the earlier sauropodomorphs that hadn't quite become a full-fledged big old sauropod yet. They found a whole lot of tracks, both back and front footprints, and they found at least 260 tracks. And a lot of them are quote-unquote sub-parallel, which they think indicates that the animals were gregarious. Because they were kind of walking together? Yes. And I don't really know sub-parallel. I think that means that they weren't exactly parallel. Mm -hmm. One slightly behind the other. Yeah, or Yeah, or like angled a little bit towards each other or something. But it's not like they were all coming together to meet at a point. They're just strolling. Yeah, that's pretty much what it looks like. Although they are at several different layers, so you can tell that they weren't all walking at the same time. There were about 10 that were clearly at a much lower level, but they didn't even identify those into a trackway because they're pretty indistinct. They only identified about 97 of the tracks of the 260 into trackways, and it's because <laughs> it's really a mess when you look at it. There are so many footprints all over the place, and I guess those were the ones that they thought they could clearly say was likely one individual walking in the same direction and not just by chance different footprints that are kind of headed in the same sort of direction. It's a good thing dinosaurs didn't dance or tap dance or anything. Well, they might have. They got the scratch marks and stuff like that. I was just thinking in that case, like if you've got a couple of humans and then all of a sudden one decides they want to break out into dance and you're trying to study their footprints, that could get really confusing. It could. But how often does that happen? More often than you think. I don't know. I think most of the time people are just walking. I don't know. You walk with me all the time and I sometimes feel the need to do this. <laughs> I don't remember you ever tap dancing. But I'm doing it on concrete <laughs> so you can't see my tracks. Yeah, that's true. Not tap dancing, just something that's out of the ordinary, not a regular walk. Yeah, I suppose humans do a lot of weird stuff, more so than most animals. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Especially you, maybe. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so they also found one small theropod in the mix, at least one small theropod with a couple theropod tracks. But the coolest thing about it is that two of the trackways are different than the others, they had no front leg prints, they had long scratch marks, and the feet were kind of turned in instead of out. So maybe, to your point, they were doing something weird <laughs> intentionally, but <laughs> the authors didn't propose tap dancing or anything. They proposed that either they were walking bipedally, because it's just the hind prints, that they were under tracks, meaning that the feet kind of penetrated a top layer into this lower layer of sediment, and then the lower area was the only part that actually fossilized. Hmm. So we've seen that kind of thing before, and usually what you end up with is only the back feet and kind of a shallower indication, and sometimes just like the claws, if they're going through loose sand, I think has been a description before. So 
that's definitely a possibility. And then the third possibility is that they were swimming. And like a long time ago, when we talked about Stegosaurus and its potential swimming, it's the same sort of logic. Basically, you've got these tracks and there's no front limb prints because they likely had shorter front limbs. And on top of that, when dinosaurs go into the water, since they have their lungs in the front, that means that they kind of tilt <laughs> with their back legs farther down into the water than their front legs because the lungs hold their chest up and out of the water. It's pretty much the same way we are when we're in the water. The legs tend to sink more than your arms. So what that means is if you're going into the water or you're in just barely shallow enough water or deep enough, depending on which way you look at it, your feet just barely graze the bottom of the lake or river or whatever you're swimming across. And what that can mean is that your, your kind of toes are scratching on it and it leaves these kind of scratch marks. And with that stegosaur that was in the UK, what they actually found was a transition. It had regular footprints and then that sort of turned into more longer, scratchier, scratchier prints and then they disappeared. So perhaps it was walking down kind of a ramp getting less and less contact with the bottom of the lake. And then once it was fully floating, it's no longer making tracks, obviously. So that could be the case for these sauropod tracks, but they can't really specifically say which one it could be because walking bipedally would have pretty similar sort of tracks, especially they were saying maybe it's a transition from walking on two legs versus four legs. And therefore maybe that's causing these scratches, I guess. And then under tracks, you know, work too. But most of the headlines focused on swimming because that's a lot more interesting. <laughs> more fun to picture too. Yeah. The weird things about it for swimming though is that the tracks are right on top of some other normal looking tracks that don't look like swimming tracks. Although, like we often say, even though in these trackways it looks like they're all walking at the exact same time, it could be over the course of weeks or months or years or, you know, thousands of years even, depending on how they fossilized, because they're not all in the exact same layer. They also call the area semi-arid because it was lacking in invertebrates and some other details, which are usually in water, which is kind of weird if it's going to be a deep enough bit of water for a sauropod or sauropodomorph to swim through. Being semi-arid is kind of strange. And then also that there are these trackways that don't look like they're through water, but maybe that just means that it was like a temporary lake, I guess. That could be a potential. I mean, we have that kind of stuff in California, especially in Los Angeles, where there are areas called rivers. <laughs> but if you go there 99% of the time, it just looks like a grassy field. And then like the couple of days a year when it rains heavily, it turns into a river. So Or mud. Yeah. So that kind of thing could be happening here potentially. And I want to talk about one more trackway article. This one was a little more exciting to me, but I figured we'd start with sauropods. So Anthony Fiorio and others published an article about a trackway in Alaska, and I think we've mentioned it before because back in 2012, the researchers first discovered a single therizinosaur track in Alaska, and then that prompted them to look for more tracks. And luckily, they did find quite a few more. Oh, was this the superhighway one? Yes, that's what most of the articles called it was like, Alaska is a dinosaur superhighway. But really what they're meaning is that there was a connection between North America and Asia via Alaska. That was really all they talked about in the article. Mm. So what they ended up finding was 
a combination of Therizinosaur and Hadrosaur tracks. And most of them are kind of isolated. So it's like there's one Therizinosaur track over here and then a Hadrosaur footprint way over there kind of thing. But luckily there was one block, one pretty big block of tracks that had three Therizinosaur tracks in a row. So you can kind of see its gait size as well as several different Hadrosaur tracks. So you could tell that they were there at the same time because it looks like those were made at the same time. It's like the same layer. They say that that is the first North American co-occurrence of tracks attributable to hadrosaurs and therizinosaurs. Does that mean co-occurrence is both of them? Yeah, the like they time? were there at the same time, we think. But, I mean, really, to me, it's just exciting because it's therizinosaur tracks at all. The reason that this is the first co-occurrence is because we've only got a couple other Therizinosaur tracks mm -hmm. and there didn't happen to be Hadrosaurs there at the same time. But everything has to be the first of something. So yes, that is the first time that has happened. But both of them are interesting on their own. So the Therizinosaur tracks are pretty cool. They kind of look like a typical theropod track in some cases with an extra toe off to the side. So if you're familiar, sort of like the T-Rex print in Jurassic Park, if you made it four-toed. That's sort of what a Therizinosaur footprint looks like. Just one of their many weird features. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually not too different than an Oviraptorosaur foot. So there's even a section of the paper where they kind of explain why it's not an Oviraptorosaur. They overlay the foot bones of Oviraptorosaurs and they try to do like a little arc on where the toes would meet the foot. And then they compare that to what the trackway looks like. And it looks pretty compelling to my super untrained eye, but <laughs> it's cool to see that they at least tried to, you know, prove that it was likely a Therizinosaur. And the other really interesting thing is that the Hadrosaur tracks are what they refer to as a multi-generational herd. And they say that because there's a nearly continuous series of tracks ranging in size from 10 to 60 centimeters in length are four inches to two feet. So quite a big size range of feet. So yeah, looks like a whole family of hadrosaurs walking around. Oh. Yep. <laughs> the Therizinosaur tracks also ranged in size between 15 and 25 centimeters, or six and 10 inches, but obviously that's a much smaller size range and therefore likely age range. The researchers also said that this is similar to trackways in Mongolia, and that's really where this whole Alaska highway thing came from because it's in North America, but it looks like tracks that you'd see in Mongolia. And therefore they probably, or similar dinosaurs probably walked from Asia to North America and therefore going through Alaska hmm. as you do. Stop over. Yep. I really like that though. Therizinosaurs are some of my favorite dinosaurs, the big, weird, herbivorous theropods they were probably covered in feathers. They had a big gut, right? Yeah. <laughs> so they're like, and they also had the huge claws on their hands. Mm -hmm. It's just like such a strange combination of features. Maybe they were the bodyguards of these hadrosaurs. Yeah. I mean, the claws, one of the most likely reasons they had them could have been for self-defense. So it would make sense that it would, you'd want to be around them, <laughs> especially if you had little young that you're trying to protect mm -hmm. traveling with the therizinosaurs would be good maybe the hadrosaurs could see better oh, off yeah. in the distance and the therizinosaurs could fight better so they end they up sticking each other together out. can make all kinds of stories around this yes <laughs> it's pretty cool 
I also really like the idea of these little tiny baby hadrosaurs joining the rest of the herd and the therizinosaurus and everything. Mm -hmm. They made one piece of paleo art for it in the paper that kind of shows the combination of the animals, which is pretty neat. And you can see the image on our website on Friday when we post the news of the week. Yes, because it's an open access journal, so we're allowed to do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. We've got some more footprint news. So dinosaur footprints have been found for the first time on the Scottish mainland. They're sauropod footprints from about 170 million years ago, and they were preserved in sandstone. And they're the first evidence outside of the island of Skye. And because of this, or at least it seems because of this, there's a crowdfunding project to raise 5,000 pounds to map out new Scottish dinosaur footprint localities and find more locations around Scotland. And this is run by Dr. Neil Clark, who's the one who discovered the recent Scottish footprints. And the plan is to purchase a drone to help map and take photos of all these footprints. Yeah. By mapping, I think they mean like digitally making reconstructions of them more than just like a map of where in Scotland they are. Could be both. Could be. It's pretty easy to just point to it on a map, though. I don't know. Many sites have been lost because it wasn't properly mapped out. <laughs> That's true. Documentation is important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Next, Canadian company Glacier Lake Resources has acquired Colt Mesa Copper Mine in the former boundaries of Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. There's pushback from conservation groups challenging any potential mining. A conservation Lands Foundation and other organizations filed a lawsuit against the U.S. president's executive order that cut Grand Staircase by about 900,000 acres. And groups are saying that that lawsuit needs to be resolved before any mining starts and just Quick background, Grand Staircase is the site to a lot of Triassic-era fossils and Cretaceous fossils, and also mammals in addition to dinosaurs. Yeah, hopefully none of these fossils get destroyed by too much development. Yes, so we will see how that unfolds. In museum news and events, the Perot Museum of Nature and Science in Dallas, Texas, is going to be opening a new paleo lab on Labor Day weekend, which is the first weekend of September in the U.S., You'll be able to see paleontologists preparing fossils. There's going to be cameras in the lab to show close-up shots. And the opening is also part of DinoFest on September 1st and 2nd, which will have fossil digs, live music, a beer garden, trivia, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Sounds like fun. It does, yeah. The University of Alberta is holding a dinosaur dentistry event on Saturday, September 22nd from 8.45 in the morning to 1.15 p.m., Dr. Phil Curry, Dr. Peter Ungar, and Dr. Aaron LeBlanc will be talking about dinosaur teeth, like what we know, how teeth dictated the type of food that a dinosaur ate, and how teeth were used to hunt or survive. And tickets cost $5. You can book now. It's funny that they're calling it a dinosaur dentistry event. Yeah. Well, it's all about the teeth. <laughs> yeah. Next, thanks to Keenan, who shared this one with us, the Philip J. Curie Dinosaur Museum is looking for volunteers for their fossil preparation lab to help clean and prepare Pachyrhinosaurus fossils that were found in the Pipestone Creek bone bed nearby. So museum staff will help supervise. If you volunteer, you get training on how to clean and prepare the fossils, and then you get hands-on experience, and that includes maybe you use glue to fix some broken pieces, or you scrape some stuff with scalpels and dental picks or brush away debris. And anyone who volunteers gets their name recorded in the museum's database with the piece that they worked on. You don't have to have any experience, so just come if you're interested. You do have to be over 12, and if you're between ages 12 and 15, you will need to be accompanied by an adult. Next National Fossil Day is coming up, October 17th this year. I guess that's coming up. 
It's not that far. It's only a couple months. months. (laughs) Well, if you want to plan ahead what you're going to do. Oh, I suppose. Because there's a lot of events going on. Not all on October 17th. Some of them are the weekend before, 13th, 14th-ish. So on that note, you should also be preparing for Halloween because that's only two weeks later. Maybe. Well, if you want to dress up as like a complicated sort of dinosaur or something. Oh, true, true. Oh, then you can use it twice. Yeah, you could dress up for Fossil Day and yeah, for and Halloween. Halloween. That's a good point. <laughs> so we've got a link so you can check out the events that have been posted. But if you're interested in hearing a little bit, there's going to be something at the Las Cruces Museum of Nature and Science. They're going to have a Fossil Day. Cleveland Museum of Natural History is going to have an Archaeology Day with talks and guests. And Burke Museum of Natural History and Culture is going to have a live fossil preparation. So that's all over the place. Yes. It's the beauty of it. I think they were saying that there were, it was International Fossil Day, somebody that we met because a couple of people in Canada were involved with it last year, but I guess they're still just calling it National Fossil Day. At least on the PLOS One blog. Gotcha. Maybe it depends who you talk to. Maybe it hasn't spread enough internationally to count. I think there have been hashtags on Twitter, but I can't remember now if it was national or international. It's everyone's national fossil day. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't have to be just one nation, I suppose. Or we can simplify and just call it fossil day. Yeah. <laughs> call it world fossil day. Oh, that too. Like the world series, even though that only really takes place in the US. But there are fossils worldwide. There are a lot more than there are baseball teams. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned Canada, speaking of. Scotty the T-Rex celebrated her birthday at the Discovery Center in Easton, Saskatchewan in Canada with a pretty funny interview. So Scotty was found on August 16th, 1991, and she answered a bunch of questions about herself, you know, obviously her, her persona, including how she got her name. She said, quote, when my friends Tim, John and Robert found me, they celebrated with a special bottle of scotch, thus the name Scotty. (laughs) Although I don't know exactly how they know she's female. Maybe yeah, there's a medullary don't. bone or something. I'm guessing this is just like how all boats are female. They're just calling the fossil female out of tradition. Maybe. I, Scotty didn't say. <laughs> Scotty doesn't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Scotty did say that she's probably the heaviest, bulkiest T-Rex found so far. She has a femur that's over 50 pounds. I'm guessing that's how much it probably weighed while it was made out of bone. Not how much it weighs now that it's made out of rock. Yes. Because that would be pretty light for a T-Rex femur. <laughs> well, 65% of Scotty's been found. And if you want to see her, she's got a replica in the gallery at the T-Rex Discovery Center. I don't think she'll answer questions. <laughs> got another story of an awesome kid who loves fossils. So 10-year-old Evie Swire has requested that Mary Annie get a statue in Lyme Regis. And what she did, she asked her mom, why isn't there a statue of Mary Anning already? And her mother, Anya, met with the town council, and they unanimously agreed to have a statue. So now they're raising funds and looking for help. That is really surprising, especially we've just talked about probably two or three different movies in the last year or so Mm -hmm. (laughs) about Mary Anning, and it always takes place there. So why would there not be a statue? Maybe that's why Evie was thinking... It was odd. Yeah. Like, let's go see the statue. Yeah. Wait, there's no statue. (laughs) (laughs) We've got another news item about paleontologist Xing Lida. So Xing Lida has a science fiction book out in China called, I think this is what it was called, but 
a lot of the information about this book was in Chinese, but uh, Yo Longji, Prehistoric Intruder. And in the book, it's about how humans have returned to the Cretaceous and then people have built a civilization using dinosaurs and they ride them and oh, yeah. things like that. Yeah, which sounds really cool. I'm not sure if there's an English version yet. I couldn't find that much information. But the cover art is great. It's a soldier riding a dinosaur, which I couldn't tell what kind of dinosaur because it's covered in armor. But maybe it was a Therizinosaur. That could be wishful thinking. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that would be a cool one to ride. <laughs> They'd probably be pretty like mellow too. They seem like they might be kind of mule-like, sort of slow and steady. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, maybe its claws weren't big enough. Yeah, it, it's hard for me to tell. Could be a Dinochirus, maybe. Could be. They got a similar sort of weird shape. <laughs> <laughs> Next, Mark Lowen, who's a paleontologist at the Natural History Museum of Utah, is going to be teaching an introductory course called Earth Science in Cinema at the University of Utah. And it's about the relationship between storytelling and scientific accuracy in Hollywood. So Gabriel Bowen started the course, and now Lowen's taking over for the next couple semesters. They're going to have weekly film screenings. One includes Jurassic Park. And Lowen also teaches a World of Dinosaurs course where students watch movies that bring dinosaurs to life. I'm sure they watch Jurassic Park in that, too. Yeah. The point of the class is to teach students the difference between fact and fiction in movies and news media. And students of any major are welcome to take it. I almost wish I was a student going there right now. (laughs) That would be cool to see. It's interesting because in Jurassic Park, I wonder if they start with Jurassic Park and then go to more recent movies or if they go all the way back to like the Lost World and King Kong and stuff like that. Yeah, Lost it, World 1925 version, not it, Jurassic Park. Exactly. Because then you would really appreciate how much Jurassic Park updated the depiction of dinosaurs. But if you start at Jurassic Park, then, you know, you could find more accurate stuff afterwards. Although it doesn't get that much more accurate because most depictions stick to the sort of Jurassic Park style of dinosaurs. Too bad we can't take the class. I don't know if anyone out there takes the class, let us know what movies you watch. Yeah, maybe we can get a, a hold of the syllabus or something and <laughs> watch all the movies in it. Pretend we're part of it. Yeah, <laughs> follow along at home. Speaking of Jurassic Park, though, Jurassic Outpost created a comprehensive visual guide for every dinosaur that's in a Jurassic Park or Jurassic World movie. Hmm. And they talk about how some dinosaurs look different depending on the film. There's a lot of variation in the Velociraptors, for example. And also how some dinosaurs look different as males and females, and then they give information on which movies they appear in and where. And in addition to Velociraptor, they've obviously got T-Rex, Dilophosaurus, Spinosaurus, Gallimimus, and, you know, everything that's in the movies. I wonder how granular they get, because they could even start to point out how some of the dinosaurs change size depending on the scene. It's not that granular. Okay. It's a one page, you scroll down a while and you see the image and then maybe a few bullet points. Gotcha. Yeah, but still cool. And last, thanks to Stuart who shared this one with us. So according to Entertainment Weekly, Jurassic Park's going to be in theaters next month, September, to celebrate the 25th anniversary. I guess they didn't want to clash with Fallen Kingdom coming out because technically the anniversary was June-ish. Anyway, it's going to be in 500 theaters around the U.S. I'm not sure which one specifically, but you can purchase the tickets online and then you can check there, put in your zip code for the theater nearest you. There are three theaters near us, Garrett. Oh. Yeah. You can see it either September 16th, 18th, or 19th. And then in addition to the movie, they're going to have a screening of this 17-minute remake of the movie made by fans from around the world. 
That sounds cool. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's that's a little bit shorter than the thing you talked about last week, where they went to Hawaii and shot there. Yeah, that was twenty five minutes. Although I wonder if they would incorporate part of it. Depends yeah. what they do. Yeah, that's interesting. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Scalidosaurus, which was a request from Owen Rogers and Dinosaur4602. So thanks. It was a thyreophorin ornithischian that lived in the Jurassic in what is now England. Fossils were found in Dorset. And its name means limb lizard. In Greek, the word skelos means rib of beef. (laughs) That's funny. Which brings to mind the Flintstones and his brontosaurus ribs. Uh, so really, even though they say it means limb lizard, it could also be like beef, beef rib lizard. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. It was found a long time ago in the 1850s and named by Richard Owen in 1859. There's only one species that's considered valid. It's Scalidosaurus harrisoni. And Richard Owen named Scalidosaurus harrisoni in 1861. Yeah, so I guess... He named Scalidosaurus in 1859 and then didn't assign a species to it for another two years. Because back then that was kind of the early days of the Linnaean, you know, two name thing where you do the genus and then the species and it was mm. kind of mixed up. Not not everybody did it the same all the time. So in the 1850s, James Harrison owned a quarry in Dorset, England and found these fossils. And he gave some of the fossils to Henry Norris, who collected them and, and was a retired general surgeon. 
1858, both men sent some fragments to Richard Owen, including a left thigh bone. So Owen named Scolidosaurus in a paleontology entry in the Encyclopedia Britannica, though no specimens had yet been identified. That was back in 1859. He meant to call the dinosaur hind limb saurian, but it used the Greek word skelos instead of skelos, which uh, means hind limb. Gotcha. Now it makes sense why I accidentally named it beef rib. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he named it because of its strong hind leg. So Harrison sent more fossils than a knee joint, claw, juvenile specimen, and a skull to Owen. And then Owen described those in 1861, which was the species name came out of that. And you may have already figured out, but that species name was in honor of Harrison. Harrison I. That skull was found to be part of a nearly complete skeleton, which Owen described in 1863. And Owen did not indicate a holotype. In 1888, Richard Lydecker designated hind limb fragments, the lower part of the femur, upper part of the tibia and fibula, which form the knee joint, that were described in 1861 as the type specimen, which became the lectotype. He didn't say why he chose this one as the type specimen, but in 1968, Bernard Newman found that the femur and tibia were from a theropod. Oops. Yep. Newman also thought that the rest was from a dinosaur related to Megalosaurus, and he suggested that the lectotype be officially rescinded. Alan Jack Cherig filed the request for this in 1992, and the International Commission on Zoological Nomenclature agreed in 1994 and then decided on a, a different specimen, which included the skull, lower jaws, and skeleton, to be the neotype. Oh, so that's good to know. It took them two years for that one. So maybe in another two years, we'll have the neotype for Allosaurus approved. Oh, good point. So in 1995, that knee joint from the former lectotype was informally assigned to Merosaurus by Samuel Wells and others, even though some scientists think it was some sort of Coelophysoidea or Neoceratosauria. The neotype came from marine deposits of the Sharmouth mudstone formation and is nearly complete. Only the tip of the snout, the neck base, forelimbs, and tail end are missing, and many articulated osteoderms were found. Ronald Croucher prepared most of the fossils starting in the 1960s, and Cherick said in 1992 that only one block was left to prepare, but he passed away before the results were published. Norman published some new details in 2004, but there hasn't been a full modern description yet. There was also a second partial juvenile described in 1968 that was found in 1959 by James Frederick Jackson, and another partial skeleton excavated in 1985. There's more undescribed specimens, but they're in private collections, including one that is 7 feet or 2 meters long, found in 2000. No. Yeah. I want it described. <laughs> Maybe someday. <laughs> another species that isn't valid now was Scolidosaurus Olerae, described in 1965 by David J. Simmons, though Simmons described it as Tatasaurus, and then Spencer G. Lucas reclassified it in 1996 to Scolidosaurus, but then this classification was not accepted, so it's still considered to be Tatasaurus. Scolidosaurus was one of the earliest complete dinosaurs and the most completely known dinosaur from the British Isles. It's one of the most primitive thyreophorans. Scolidosaurus was the first dinosaur academically described based on a mostly complete skeleton. Before that, most descriptions were based on isolated bones and fragments. Richard Owen thought that Scolidosaurus was semi-aquatic and ate fish. He thought that about a lot of dinosaurs. <laughs> and that it may have been oviviparous, which means that it had eggs that hatched in its body. And that was odd because it was large and Owen had put forward this idea that dinosaurs were quadrupedal and active. Scolidosaurus lived on Laurasia. It was medium-sized for its time, about 13 feet or 4 meters long. 
It was a quadrupedal herbivore with longer hind limbs than forelimbs, and it may have been sometimes bipedal, but mostly quadrupedal. Its feet were large and wide, it had four large toes and one small toe on each foot, and it had flat, hoof-shaped claws that curved to the inside. Scolitosaurus' tail was about half the length of its body, it had a small, elongated head and its snout was flat on top, and it probably had a short beak. It probably cropped vegetation with its primitive teeth and had a simple up-and-down jaw movement, and it would have eaten low plants. It may have reared up on its hind legs to get leaves off the trees, but probably not. And (laughs) Scolitosaurus had a large gut. It's good. It's good when you're eating plants. Mm -hmm. It also had light armor with long horizontal rows of oval scutes on its back and tail, and possibly neck, with three rows on each side of its body. The scutes were different sizes, and they had four rows of large scutes on the tail. It did not have continuous plating or spikes or a pelvic shield, but it had two rows of large osteoderms on each side of its neck, and its hip and tail base had lots of ossified tendons. Starting to get a little bit ankylosaurish. Mm-hmm. Some scolitosaurus specimens have osteoderms that looked thorny or spiky, as well as some small horns on the back of their heads, and they may have had skin ossifications on the skull and lower jaws. David Martel and others in 2000 said that they found soft tissue in a scolitosaurus specimen, and they show the presence of a layer of skin over the scutes. The authors suggested that basal armored dinosaurs had osteoderms covered in a tough, keratinous layer of skin. Yeah, that was kind of confirmed with Notosaur, although that's not an early... <laughs> no. Thyria <laughs> 4 out, it's like 100 million years later, but... Yeah. And as you may have guessed, the osteoderms were probably used for defense. You can see a Scolitosaurus cast at the Dinosaur Discovery Site Museum in St. George, Utah. In 2011, local resident Virginia Stabney covered most of the costs, about $7,000 for the replica, because his nine grandkids urged him to. <laughs> and the dinosaur is known as the Dabney Scolitosaurus replica. Nice. Scolitosaurus is a cool one. Mm-hmm. Without it, we probably wouldn't have all the ankylosaurs that I like so much. <laughs> True. <laughs> and our fun fact of the day goes back to that herd of hadrosaurs that I mentioned, and specifically how big their feet were. So when I was reading that, and I was saying, you know, oh, they went from under 10 centimeters to over 60 centimeters, I was trying to imagine what that was compared to human feet. And therefore, compared to like a group of human people, like how big would the baby be and how big would the adult be? So if you translate these to shoe sizes, just based on the length, I didn't use width because obviously their feet are a lot wider than people's feet. You get that the youngest ones, which were just under 10 centimeters long, is about the size of a U.S. infant size two shoe. Pretty much one of the smallest shoes you can put on a human. Also, a UK size 1 or a European size 17. I don't know why the European size for babies is so large. But anyway, when you go to the largest end of the spectrum, which is just over 60 centimeters (laughs) or over two feet long, you get a men's size 54, which is the same in the US and UK, basically, and a European size 87. So that is an enormous shoe. And yeah, it's kind of funny that the youngest... One is basically the size of like a baby foot on the little baby hadrosaur. And then the big one is obviously way bigger. And the reason it's such a big range compared to humans is that dinosaurs hatch a lot smaller relative to adult size than humans do because because they don't gestate as long. So they hatch after only a couple months and then they have a lot of growing to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And fast. Yes. Especially those herbivores got to scale up quick before they get eaten i guess that's true for all of them actually because even if you eat meat 
doesn't mean that the meat eaters won't eat you. <laughs> yeah. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash inodino. Again, thanks to everybody. We're more than halfway to our next big goal. Thanks for listening, and until next time. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.